with Robert Kiyosaki. So that's what I watch. On the other side of it, it's a great time to be an entrepreneur because if you're smart, you have a good spirit, and you <clears throat> you learn quickly. See, the greatest the greatest thing about entrepreneurs how fast can you learn? You know, when you you look at the seven deadly sins, the biggest tragedy is ego. Said so ego or van, vain glory is the road straight to hell. And so you got to you know I, I tell you I made mistakes. I tell you I screwed it up. I'm definitely on the short list for saint. But you'd better be honest, and people trust you, and you better keep your word. You know, you're only as good as your word. Yeah. So actions and words must be in integrity. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, a lot of the best businesses have started uh, when when there was a recession, Correct. right? There was、Correct. this idea of、uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb.、Uh, I'm sure you're a fan、oh, of him. Oh, he is my hero. Anti-fragile, stronger. I mean, I diamonds get、stuff. stronger, right? Yeah. As 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 an under pressure, so it's it's a it's a very interesting concept, but people fear it. People, a lot of people fear it. Yeah, but he's but you know his 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 lesson is you go to the gym, you get stronger. It hurts for a little bit, you get stronger. Yeah. And people are coming out of school weaker today, and that's what disturbs me. You know, and then you know Patrick Bet David, man, he's guy. That guy is amazing what he's teaching. Yeah. And so there's many young guys coming up that are teaching brilliant stuff, and that's YouTube. You know, which which、um, is a whole new channel, right? Is social media now the channel? So if you're in traditional media, you're in trouble.、Mm. But if you're moving with the trends, you're in good good shape right now. Sure. Sure. So that's the difference. Well, Nassim Nicholas Taleb also talks about、um, uh, in Black Swan. He talks about this idea of the barbell strategy, right? Where he kind of uses like the S and P as like an analogy, where most people think medium. This idea of like putting yourself into medium risk is the safest option, when in fact you're not really getting much of the upside, but you're getting all of the downside as well. So you're allocating risk in a way that is not actually helping you diversify. And you're actually putting yourself in more risk. And he advocates this idea of putting yourself into very risky assets in a small amount, and the rest into, let's say, in this case, cash, bonds, and that oh, way. Wait, oh, even bonds are in trouble now. Bonds are, I guess, yeah. So yeah. most likely, cash where it's well, very liquid. When I was your age, the smart guys were in bonds. Nobody was in stocks.、Mm-hmm. Today, everybody's in stocks and bonds. I'm going all the micro. Sure. Okay. Sure.、Yeah. What, what, well, what are your thoughts on the, this idea of barbell strategy, where? There is asymmetric returns where, let's say you put ten percent into something that's super risky. The maximum you can lose is that ten percent, so you still have that ninety percent still uphold. Well, it depends upon the person. Like I'm saying, I、yeah. I encourage anybody listening to this or any entrepreneur, get to the point where you don't need money. It's called the infinite return, and that's my my next book coming out next year. Yeah. When you get to the point where you don't need money, you're home free. You'll never need money. You don't care. You can always put a deal together. You can always create an asset out of nothing. You know, it's like I don't know what else. It's the power of God-given power. So, like, like I said, when I write a book, I'm selling 50 copies, 50 licenses, day one.、Mm. And let's say I get 10,000 a license. How much is that? 50 times 10,000 is it 500,000? 50 times 10,000? Yeah. That's yeah, 500,000. Yeah, so I'm in. The, I'm in the black immediately. What does it cost me? Maybe ten thousand to write a book. Do you know? So I'm in the black. The same thing. If I trade a stock, I would buy a stock at a dollar. It goes up to ten, and I sell. So I have all free trading stock. I have no money in it. That, that's what Buffett's doing. They're all infinite return guys. Sure. 
you have no money into the deal. And you can do it with anything. What are other examples that you would recommend? Uh, Stocks, you mentioned books. Well, re real estate, it's my first, my first deal was I bought a uh, condo on the island of Maui for 18,000 bucks and I gave him a credit card to put the 2,000, so $1,800, 10% down payment, and I made 25 bucks for it. Hmm. So I made 25 bucks from no money at all, 100% debt. I love debt. The average guy's afraid of debt. So if you, it's just mindset. It's, it's what you know, how do you practice. I have made a lot of mistakes. I've never lost money in real estate, hmm. never, because I invest a lot in my financial education in real estate, why? Debt and taxes. The more I can use all the debt I want and pay right. no taxes. I love it, I love it, there's a God somewhere. Why would I buy stocks? I don't understand that game. You can make money quickly. Sure. And stocks are good because they're illiquid. I mean, they're liquid. You can yeah. get out of the stocks real quick and real estate's dangerous because you can't get out of it. But that's why I've got to study more. So anyway, I, I, you know, the biggest thing I can say to any entrepreneur is, is learn. Be an active learner, low ego. Be you know it's it's tough when you're successful. Because when my nylon and vertical surfer wallet business went to the moon, I was crashing down right after it. <laughs> it was straight right. to my well, head. Well, while the ego was oh, still man, there, right? was, vanity ego still there. Yeah, right? it was straight to bed. I, I thought I walked on water, yeah. except there was no water. There was only air below me. <laughs> <laughs> so. I learned the hard way, you know. I don't. I don't learn it easy. Well, having learned that, is is your flow now? Is it that you have, you know, talking about ESBI? Is your flow now? You have these active businesses. Let's say you know books or business as well. You use the profits from that, and you invest all of it into real estate. Is that the kind of oh, the no, way no, your money no, flows? No, no, no. I only invest in real estate right now. I'm out of the real estate market. I mean, I, I still have my real estate holdings, but I'm not aggressively buying because, because the prices are too high. Because yeah. private equity and the hedge funds went into real estate. And now it makes no, it's, it's like the stock market, it's a disconnect between the price and the value. So these guys, are, my, my best friend just became a billionaire because he took all of his real estate holdings and sold it to a hedge fund. Mm. He's laughing all the way, so it's, it's gonna crash on him. It's fake valuations. Good it's, timing. Ba it's, it's based upon today's valuations, maybe not tomorrow's. Interesting. Yeah, so he's, you know, he, he and I had a race who's gonna be first millionaire I beat him, but he beat me to a billionaire. So his idea is that he sold it to the hedge fund. Once the house market goes crashing down, he's just going to buy it all back at a Correct. fraction of the price. Correct. Gotcha. gotcha. Because you know, you do, you, you know, think about entrepreneurs. You're not you're not manual labor. So you're working with your mind, your body, your spirit, and your emotions. You know, you're just sure timing things, observing things. You have to have good friends, people you trust implicitly. Yeah. And like I have fantastic staff. You know, I trust them with, you know, some of my people have been around me for 20 years. My, some of my best partners are 40 years. Mm. And we know we trust each other, so that takes time. Focus with Scott Belsky. How do you look at focus? Because I think you have a unique perspective on that. Well, it's, you know, I'm no expert um, yeah. because I am a, you know, I, I, I have a lot of ideas. Yeah. And what I have, though, learned to do over the years is kill things quickly. Mm. Um, and I think uh, there were certain periods in Behance where we did have a lot of things running and I really hesitated to kill things because I was always trying to hedge us. I was always saying, well, you know, if this network doesn't work out, we have this task management tool. And if that doesn't work out, we can still be a lifestyle business and have the conference and this and that. And I, I started to realize the hard way that I was splintering our team's time. Mm. 
Mm. You know, everyone was spending 50% on this and then 20% on this and 30% on this. And, uh, and when I started to kill things, suddenly I realized it was like a breath of fresh air the next day. Like you just got out of a, a breakup, you know, that <laughs> you were thinking about for a year and it was a good relationship, but not a great relationship. And then suddenly sure. like, oh my gosh, like the world just opened. Um, yeah. And so that is, uh, that is what we started to realize. And I started to get a little um, interested in that sensation and be yeah. like, well, wait a second. If we feel that good after killing that, what else can we kill? Like and so multiple girlfriends you could break up. It's <laughs> <Right. laughs> perfect. <laughs> and so we went into the Behance product and we realized, okay, you know, we have this group functionality and we have this tip exchange t functionality. Oh, and we also have this like work in progress feature that people aren't really using. Wow. And yet the core KPI that's driving all of our traffic and all of our usage is just posting projects and putting them in a portfolio. Let's kill groups. And what do you know? Like five days later, the traffic goes up across building projects and the editor. Mm. And it's like, oh, well, let's kill tip exchange. And then boom, like before you know it, projects are being created more, even more. Sure. And so it's like, well, wait a second. Like if we just like really simplify this and just try to kill as much as possible. And so that became a new instinct for me. And actually now I will see a lot of other products or companies that I'm invested in. And I will uh, challenge the founder on, you know, what he or she can kill or leave out of the prototype, you know, I always try to say that, you know, your minimum viable product um, is you're, you're, you're trying to optimize for a set of problems. You're actually optimizing so that people will love your product so much that they say, please add this in, please mm. add that in. And so if it's, if it's things like that, that you want people to come requesting, leave them out. But if it's something that you have to have in there for people to be successful and even want more in the first place, that's part of your MVP. Right. And so that's kind of been the, 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 the framework, so to speak, that I now apply to new products. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned also in the book that the idea of novelty versus utility, you, you do want to optimize for novelty in that it can certainly help you guys get off the ground. Yeah, I mean, there's different, you know, I would say optimize for novelty, um, over utility in some products because that's how, like when people were early adopting Slack, they were doing it because of the animated GIFs and like people being in fun rooms, like talking to one another, even though they were using other tools like HipChat for actual work. Mm -hmm. And then Slack was able to kind of take over our mind share. Um, I would also say that when it comes to community products, optimize for utility over community. That's another mistake that I see is that mm -hmm. uh, teams will build a community for a group of people and they will fail to realize that people ultimately come together first for utility. I mean, with Behance, people were ultimately coming for a free portfolio. Right. And just to power their portfolio and get jobs in a more efficient way. And then while they were there, they were like, oh, I can follow people. Oh, and now I'm following people. I can see what they're doing every day. And then they suddenly got into the community. But that was sort of a sure. second order benefit. Sure. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, focus, it, it seems like that's really what saved Behance and allowed you guys the breathing room to really take off. How do you think about, because this this is something I always struggle with because you see entrepreneurs, like a good example is your friend Garrett Camp, who from a high level perspective was working on StumbleUpon, I think back in the day, bought it back and he just had all these different side projects on the side. He wasn't really that focused and it turned out that that lack of focus right. is what helped him get Uber, and it's what everyone knows of him But now. if you think about it, you know, Garrett was never the CEO of Uber. 
Mm, and um, strategies. Yeah, and one thing okay. I've always admired about Garrett is that he is very good at not only empowering others, but also like making sure that they are as big, if not bigger owners than he is. Because he knows that it has to be someone else's idea for it to truly, truly win. Sure. And so when he was kind of sharing with me this side project that he was working on um, for Uber while he was running StumbleUpon, and uh, and we were doing a, a partnership together between StumbleUpon and Behance, you know, there was part of me that was like, "Dude, you just bought your company back, and you know, and you're supposed to be focused, and now you're like brewing this side idea." Yeah. But to his credit, he was actively engaging advisors like Travis and 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 people like Ryan to kind of run it come in and run it for him sure um, and uh, and then of course it became their company um, so I think that you know I learned from that which is that if you when you have an idea whether it's an idea that you want enacted by your team or another team you really have to kind of let go mm. and uh, and also be extraordinarily generous when it comes to equity and structure of ownership gotcha. because at the end of the day it's not you know it's ideas don't mean anything it's execution that rules the day sure sure so you think there there are ways to i guess have a little bit of both where you can i don't know if it's called hedging but it's it's to have more opportunities for yourself but you can delegate yeah in some ways as and well. i just I mean i always think about i try to say, take myself out of it and i'm like what does it take for this idea to win you know, let's like let's really be practical here. It's going to take someone waking up and going to bed every day thinking about this idea. Sure. It's going to take tremendous amounts of sacrifice. It's going to take someone who overcomes that volatility of the messy middle and somehow sticks together long enough to figure it out with the team. Yeah. Okay, what are the preconditions for that to actually happen? They have to feel like they are the owner, you know, and they have to be able to liberally give their team more ownership. And then, you know, just you start to play that out. And then you realize that you can't like synthetically just pr make that happen. And I think that's why a lot of incubators fail. I, mm. I mean, when's the last time we saw a multi-billion dollar company come out of an agency, for example, that was trying to spin up three or four companies on the side while they're serving clients? Sure. Like you just don't see that. It's like that's that's a that's super rare if never. Conviction with Mark Randolph co-founder of Netflix. You, if you start said, I'm going to start a company that's going to take on Amazon, yeah. you know, you'd be, need a head examined. I mean, speaking of Amazon, take us back to 1995. Who would have a company that tried to bring shopping on the web when there was an Amazon? It's I mean, crazy. it's kind of crazy. It's it? crazy. And, and, and <laughs> looking back, you know, almost 25 years later, 25 years before in 1995, talk us about that moment when they were looking to purchase you guys for i think it was like 15 million or so something yeah, like that yeah that's what we expected yeah so yeah. this was this was um it was actually in the summer of 1998 right. netflix launched in uh, april of 1998 so it was 2 months after launch wow and i think the uh, amazon ipo was in 1996 or something like that or 97 but right around that same time yeah. and back then if you can believe it, they only sold books. What a crazy, crazy thing idea. that was. Um, but they were the pioneers of e-commerce, more than the pioneers. They were right. the golden shining example of what the web could be for selling things. Hmm. Now, as opposed to Netflix, which was doing this ridiculous thing called renting videos by mail. You know, we mailed DVDs in that little red envelope. Yeah. And... The, you know, the reason that the book is called That'll Never Work is because every single person that I told that idea 
had the exact same reaction, which <laughs> is that'll never work. I mean, including my wife. Wow. When I came home after having that idea, I, and she goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So no one thought it was going to happen. And we persevered. You know, Reed wrote the check, and I started the company and hired the people yeah. and built the website. And we launched this thing, and we got it to launch. And we were about two months in, and it was not working very well. Yeah. So that's my preamble. So then we get the call from Amazon saying, you know, Jeff would like to – see you hmm. and we're going this is awesome because on one hand um amazon is the leader the, they're the golden the golden boy of hmm. uh, e-commerce and this is an idea of ours that everyone said will never work but jeff bezos sees something in it hmm. and so it was hugely validating that and so and we knew that the reason he was calling was because he was only books, but he had made no secret that the aspiration was to be the everything store. Right. And we knew that next was video and music. So he go, we flew up to um, Seattle, and uh, we had, this is a long time ago, and Reed Hastings, a business partner, you know, we were there together, and, and we had printed out a map from MapQuest, <laughs> you know, because no cell phones, no GPS. Some people still use MapQuest, yeah. Yeah, we had a MapQuest little map. And we're navigating, in, and we're, we're going, this is going to be cool. We're going to see the headquarters of Amazon. And we're going, are we in the right place? I mean, we're in this dangerous-looking neighborhood, and there's people literally shooting up in the doorway, oh and there's God. broken windows, and there's garbage in the street. And then we see the building, and it's an old dumpy warehouse, and the windows are dirty. And we go inside, and there's not even a receptionist, and there's boxes on the stairs. They're a public company at this point. They're a public company at this Jesus. point. And we go in, and they're, they're, everyone's sitting at desks made out of old doors <laughs> on four-by-four on four four wooden legs with the little hole where the uh, doorknob was yeah. patched with a piece of wood. Oh, my God. So, so part of us are going, this is the golden boy of uh, e-commerce? So it was kind of interesting. But then when I, I asked Jeff, uh, what's, hey, Jeff, what's with the doors? Um, and it was a great, interesting answer because he said, it's a way of showing every single person in the company that we don't spend money on things that don't directly impact the customer. Mm. So kind of this notorious frugality um, until it came time to doing the right thing for the customer. Did you feel the employees there appreciated that as well? Yes. They, they were yeah. passionate. You could tell. They were on a mission. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, they were jammed in there. Damn. Um, but anyway, so, we, we, so when Reed and I, and at the end of the meeting, the CFO walked us out and she said, um, listen, this is interesting, and I, but I do need to set expectations that if we go forward with this, we're probably thinking in the low eight figures and okay. you're, you're calculating how many is, is that that's in the, that would yeah. be the tens of millions of dollars right and when someone says low eight figures what they really mean is barely eight figures yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we go okay that's probably that means 14 to 16 million dollars right if that if yeah. that and i uh yes and i owned about a third of the company at that point because this was pre-vc right and uh i was going that would be pretty good payday for a year's work yeah but it was that perfect moment where we thought that we'd solved all the hard problems 
we'd managed to build a simple e-commerce website, the type of website that someone could get via Shopify in right. about uh, 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, it took us six months to do that. Hmm. You know, we had to build our own payment system because there was no PayPal. We had to build our own analytics because there was no Optimizely and Looker and all those things. Wow. So um, we thought we had solved it. We'd launched this website. I had endured months in the wilds of New Jersey convincing the consumer electronics company to put a uh, three free DVD rental coupon in the boxes of DVD players being sold. And... We weren't quite ready to hand the keys over to uh, to Jeff Bezos at that point. Hmm. So, you know, anyways, it was a commitment ceremony for uh, for Reed and I. Would, you th- would there have been a number that you guys were discussing before, where they said if they if they give us this amount, we'd take it? No, we never. Again, this is an idea that everyone said will never work, hmm. and so I don't think we even had envisioned the idea that we could sell it. So this was more like, wow, let's see what. Let's see what he says. Right. Um, it you know, luckily the timing was good because the interesting question to ask would be, we were only about a month away from closing the first v- venture funded round, and if we had had the VC in that conversation, it could have gone two entirely different ways. Because yeah. either they could have said, "Oh my God, I cannot believe I funded this stupid thing. <laughs> this is Sell my it. chance. <laughs> Get me out." Get me out. Yeah. But it also could have been they could have. Jeff Bezos could have said $30 million, and and then the VC could have said, no, I need 10x on my money, right. or whatever. You know you know the, the saga yeah. sometimes. Yeah, gotcha. So if anything, this was a fuel to the fire for you guys, because here you are failing, you guys weren't really sure where the next step is, and now you've got this validation from Jeff Bezos, who you highly respect and... Now this is like go time. Exactly right. There's yeah. nothing like convincing you that you're on the right track than having someone else try and buy it from you. Gotcha. It's like, wow, if someone else wants it, then maybe I don't want to sell it. Learning with Dr. Moran Surf. Yeah, this, this is something we didn't get into uh, before our, our chat, but I should have mentioned that one, uh, one of the companies that I run is a language learning app. And what we're using is a mixture of AI and speech recognition that allows people to speak a new language confidently. Uh, so it's all speaking, there's no finger touching or anything like that. And the entire app is built around that. And I would actually love to kind of transition and, and take, for example, a language learning uh, process is kind of dreadful for most people. They associate that with going to the gym and you kind of need to put up a daily habit. Um, how can we use this the neuroscience to help people develop the habits uh, and to successfully learn a language in the long run? So first of all, I would say, preface that, how much I encourage learning languages. In a way, I think that the passport to different countries isn't the actual passport with a stamp, it's language. If Mm. you speak the language of a different nationality, different ethnicity, different group, different culture, you know a lot more about them than ever before. In fact, it is a tangent, but I'm going to go back to your question in a second. We know that language is one of the best way to shape thoughts. Uh, we know that uh, when you uh, use different languages to ask a question, you can actually shape the answer. If I ask you, if you're in a trial and someone asks you how fast were the cars when they hit each other versus how fast were they when they blasted each other? So it's the same question, but blasted immediately implies faster. People actually increase about two miles, 25 miles per hour to the answer just because they imagine blasting rather than hitting each other. So language wow. really shapes our thinking. So that's just that. 
I would say more than that. Uh, we have now more and more evidence on language that says that people actually change their brain based on the language we use. There's a famous study on a tribe in the kind of a, a, a tribe in Africa that doesn't have a language for the word uh, left and right. They don't have like just the, those words don't exist in their language, uh, but they used uh, directions like north, south, east, west uh, a lot. So they would say something like, uh, "You have an ant crawling on your northeast arm." That's how they would describe it. Now, what's interesting about this tribe is that uh, because they have to use language to describe directions all the time without having left and right, they become amazingly good in knowing where they are in the world. So you can take a person from this tribe and turn them around 10 times, kind of eyes closed, and then open their eyes and say, where is north? And they just say, it's there. The same way you just always know where right and left is. It's obvious to you, aligned to yourself. They just know exactly where north and south and east and west are all the time. And accordingly, their brain hippocampus, the part of the brain that actually controls navigation, is bigger. So it's somehow that their brain learned to encode the world differently because they have different language to describe the world. So all of that is a tangent to say that language is extremely important and if there's kind of one thing that people can do right now when they're at, locked at home to help themselves is learn a language. It, it, it will change their lives. Suddenly they will see different uh, kind of more colors in the world that they uh, live in right now because they'll be able to describe it differently. Now, how can we do that? I think that the barrier is that uh, learning language starts with memory. At some point you have to kind of memorize a lot of words. When I started to learn languages uh, as a younger uh, kid, uh, I, I grew bilingual, I was born in one country, I had to move to another one, and then I moved to the US, a third one, I had to learn English also, so I had to kind of learn a few languages. Uh, at some point I was forced, uh, I, I took a, uh, my master's was in humanities and philosophy, and when you do humanities you're forced to learn a new language. It's part of like the requirement, and I chose randomly a language that at the time seemed obscure and had no Kind of connection to my life i never needed it which was czech so i just decided i'm gonna study czech huh. and i studied czech and it happened to be that the teacher was a linguist himself so he was kind of a, a student of linguistics who was kind of told you're gonna teach the czech class because you know it and uh, and we need that so it was only three students and the professor that's all we were and i was dreading that because i said like how can i even start you language that I don't have anything to do with, and not, I've never heard it before. And he said one thing that to me was extremely helpful, and I, maybe it's gonna help, be helpful to your audience. He said, if you know 1,000 words in a language, you are able to read the newspaper. And suddenly this number, 1,000, seemed tangible. So if someone says, learn a language, it feels, okay, there's no way to grasp it, it's infinite. But he said, it's only 1,000 words is what linguists say is a number you need, in order to be able to actually converse in a language, to read a newspaper, to kind of get by. You need to know a little bit like the grammar and so on, but a thousand languages, a thousand words in a language isn't infinite. And then he said, we're gonna have two years together and we're gonna study 20 every week, you know, 52 weeks a year, we're gonna get 1,000 very quickly and then we're gonna just keep practicing them. So you broke it to 1,000, but it was broken to 20 a week across 52 weeks. Suddenly we learned Czech in a way by having a goal that was there. So when people study language many times, they don't really know how much there's gonna be. Like they know the journey starts, but they have no idea kind of how far they are. They don't know, okay, we're half the way to learn this thing. And it doesn't go linearly. Like you don't know after three weeks that you actually made a progress. It kind of feels, I still cannot speak Chinese, so I made probably no progress. But you actually have, it's just like it goes like this. Like you, you mm. feel like nothing and suddenly everything works out. So when you have, when you break it to some kind of a path that you can see, Suddenly language becomes tangible, and I think everyone can realize that, okay, they can learn a new language entirely in short time using an app or a software or a guide and master that. And I think this gives people and gave me back then encouragement, and it worked out. I speak Czech. Wow, that's fascinating. And is it the thousand most common words in a specific language? 
Yes. So I think mm. I mean, and I think it does change, you know, based on language. It was kind of a big number that helped me. Uh, some languages are a little bit more complex. Some languages uh, like, uh, require also a shift of style. So, for instance, Russian, uh, you change nouns in, in, in Russian and in some Slavic languages, like 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 it, like you actually like your name Sean would actually be spelled differently and said differently if you're the subject or the object of a sentence. Where in mm. most languages in the Western world, Sean is Sean. Like, we never change that. Like, like uh, you, Moran goes to the supermarket or, or Moran was seen by a friend. They're all Moran. Uh, in some languages, if, if Moran is seen by a friend, it's like actually Morana uh, suddenly instead of like, so people like, so, so th- th- those conceptual changes actually require people to adjust their thinking about languages. So suddenly it becomes a bit more complex. But for, if you kind of, the audience needs a take home message, 1,000 roughly, and ideally, of those, the majority should be the ones that are kind of conversational, uh, conversational that are kind of used, like, where is this? Thank you, please help me, and so on. This is enough to be the newspaper. And that's, I think, mm. to me, a big kind of milestone that you can say, okay, I'm going to speak, I'm going to be able to read the newspaper in Korean in six months. That sounds like a good thing to do. Mm. And the idea, I guess, is that even in English, we don't actually use most of the vocabulary that we don't we don't we know right we don't use aardvark yeah. we don't use words like idiosyncratic every sentence so it, it totally makes sense to me you just have to focus on those very and once uh, the, we actually learn the the kind of core we start learning without being taught it's kind of unsupervised learning suddenly like you, you might know nine words out of the 10 in a sentence but with those nine you can actually infer the tenth one so even if you don't know suddenly the learning happens it's no longer like you learn by kind of registering one more word and putting it in the bank at some point you have enough vocabulary to figure out the other meanings of words that you don't know just by kind of context and suddenly you can keep learning and, and you ju- the jump from like 600 to 700 might happen not just by learning one more 100 more the same way you learn from zero to 100 it's just you kind of start getting them you, you start seeing meaning you start seeing oh this one looks exactly like this one oh but it's actually a reverse so when you reverse in this language you just use the word a before and you start kind of the, the not all the 1000 are equal like you kind of once you learn something you start inferring languages by themselves so it becomes mm-hmm. even easier Attraction with Dr. Drew. David Buss, that's the name I was just looking for here. David, David Buss, Buss yes. a very famous evolutionary psychologist. And um, he, he would say uh, that the way we evolved in the savanna, the female would primarily be motivated to look for resources and stability to have the ability to raise a child safely and effectively. So resources and st- and men, he would say, are looking primarily for fecundity and genetic uh, fittedness. Yeah. So you're look- we're looking for good genes and the ability to deliver a child. They're looking for the ability to create an environment where the child can thrive and, and where they can be safe. And you got to remember when a woman is there's when a woman is pregnant, they are vulnerable. And so those motivate, again, this is back to motivational systems. People don't think enough about motivational systems. They're in there operating in our heads. We don't have to cave into them. We don't have to give to them. But to pretend they're not there, they'll get you. <laughs> they'll find their way through. It's like addiction. They'll, they'll come out. But you can acknowledge them, use them, shape them, push in different directions. But uh, if you ignore it, it will, it will find its way into behavior. Um, and yeah, resources are a major motivation and, and, you know, there's lots and lots of literature out there on, you know, what women find attractive and it's very different than men and they have, and they have sort of different systems operating. They have, you know, sometimes they are looking for genetic fittedness at certain times in the month and sometimes they're looking for somebody nice and able to nest it's, and some, and women are different from one another. I mean, just to make generalities about this, 
gets a little dicey. Yeah, I think I think you said in a podcast where it, for for women, it's they look for competency for for men. Well, women find that very attractive. Attractive, that yeah. Competency is is I, I think men do too, though. Uh, I think competency generally is a, is a uh, is a really uh, cool quality that I think we all would find it attractive. Do you think that shifts over time because competency in a man, let's say even 500 or 1,000 years ago, was being able to hunt down a boar, create fire, right. and feed the family, right. whereas this day and right. age, it might be someone exactly. that's a com computer engineer that created a billion-dollar startup. So it's, well, it, does it, that shift it, over time? Yeah, oh, of course. But, okay. but I think competency now is more um, capacity in I, – I, I think about you – know, when, when I think about competency, I think about – you know, being able to uh, run uh, a resuscitation in a busy emergency room and keep it cool and know exactly what to do. Or if now if we dial it back a thousand years, competency would be able to, you know, protect this castle in the middle of a chaotic or something. You know, it's, it feels to me more like something in action that, it, it, mm. that that's when competency really steps in and, and becomes attractive, I think. It certainly seems to shift over time. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, James Nestor. He wrote a book called Breath. It just recently came out. It was, I think it was on Joe Rogan as well. Called Threat? Uh, Breath. Breath. I remember yeah. hearing about this. And what, what was his deal? Uh, well, he, he wrote, he was a free diver, he's a journalist, but he wrote, wrote a lot about why breath is so important and how that dates back into how the shape of our uh, face has evolved over time, whereas kind of the pre-human species had perfect teeth. Humans are the only ones that have crooked teeth. And part of that is because of the modern diet. When like the fire became invented, we started to chew softer food and soup and rice and all these things where our mouths have become smaller over time. So it's coming longer and skinnier, which yeah. fundamentally has shaped different face, uh, faces over the, even the past 400 years. So I bring that up because I guess it would mean that Females and males, we've just learned to find, like we're very adaptable in terms of what makes us feel attracted to someone and probably goes around with ethnics, right? Like white males were like the big thing in Hollywood and they were the only ones that had faces up on the screens, whereas now it's more of the minorities that are getting some more attention. And uh, it seems like it's a very adaptable thing that humans can learn what to feel attracted to. Uh Absolutely. I, I, I just I, I was reacting to the word learn um, okay. because that's a little bit, you know, it's, it's a little bit specific. It, it, it's something because attractions, again, are built on motivational systems and motivational systems are, are complicated. Yes, <laughs> uh, they don't. They're not strictly a, a learning paradigm. Uh, but I do agree with your general construct. Sexuality with Anna Akana. I've, the most interesting thing I've I've encountered in the industry is that Asian men and Asian women are treated the opposite. Like Asian yes. women are highly sexualized and fetishized. Asian men are emasculated. Completely, yeah. And it, it's been interesting to finally have people like John Cho who got to be the lead in Selfie or Camille Nanjiani. I don't know if you saw, I posted all these like sexy buff half-naked pics because he's going to be in the next Marvel movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. People are like losing their mind. He was like on the front page of Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I was like, yeah, sexualize that Asian man. Oh, get it, get it. Um, so it's been weird. Like I've also noticed in the community, just like, have you heard of the rice pill? The rice pill? It's like the red pill, but for Asians. Uh, is this like when you get drunk, 
you don't want to go red, so you take the pill? <laughs> no, no. No? The red, do you know what incels are? Yes. Okay, so the red pill is a part of Reddit full of incels who believe like rape should be legalized, da 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 The rice pill is an Asian subsect of Asian men who believe that Asian women should only be with Asian men. And oh, like, that is so funny. Yeah, they take it upon themselves to just hate on Asian women in the entertainment industry across the board. Wow. So like this weird thing of dealing with people of your own race thinking you're like a traitor to your race or that you owe your race something has been an interesting part of the industry as well. Like Constance Wu came under attack from them. I've been under attack from them. Yeah. It's been a very uh, hostile group. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, I can't, I can't, um, I can't imagine how, how difficult it is. I mean, it's, there's the, the also, there's a pressure for Asian women now to date Asian men because they're speaking out. So people feel like, oh, they're they're like hypocrites if they don't date Asian mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's hard for me to relate. Like I grew up in Canada, but I've I haven't really dated a lot of Asian women either. So I never really understood that. Yeah, and if an Asian wo- a man is seen with a white woman, everyone's always like, yeah, they cheer for them yeah. <laughs> all the time, whether it's Latina or yeah. or, or white woman. Um. Is there pressure on you in that sense to like speak for the Asian woman? Are you because you you're really one of the faces in the, in the younger generations for for Asian women? Um, yeah. I mean, I can't represent them all. You know, you know how it is when you're the token Asian in the group, and every white person looks at you to see if it's okay. But yeah. um, I don't know. I think it is such an interesting thing because America's a melting pot. So it's like I don't. You know, dating is hard enough. Why am I going to limit myself to one pool of mediocrity? No offense to everyone here. But, you know, dating men <laughs> is, is its own thing. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, oh, I feel like I offended you all. I'm so sorry. Okay. Yeah, we're going to wrap it up pretty soon. Yeah, or, okay. we'll cut it out. <laughs> I've offended all the men. Um, yeah, no, no. No, joke, joke. Um, no, I don't know. I don't know, man. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough all around. Dating. No, I've always been attracted to women, but I've only like really been emotionally into a handful in my life. So I skew more male. Um, but I, I felt like it was important to come out about it because people have this idea that bisexuality has to be 50-50 down the middle. And I was right. like, that's not what it is. But it's not, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you've had that for a while. You've had that since you were, since yeah. you were a child. Yeah. And then you came out fairly recently, I think? Yeah, I had a lot of internalized... Uh, uh, homophobia to work through in my twenties. Oh man! Yeah. Um, but I guess the positive thing is that uh, I think you made a video around this, which is you understand men oh, a yeah. lot more, and yeah. you can empathize with what men go through. Yeah. Um, what are some of those things that that you mentioned? So people, I mean, like the first time I got used by a woman for free dinner, I was just like what? They do that? And all my guy friends were like, yeah, you idiot. Like, of course (laughs) they do it. And I was like, oh, that feels like so gross and makes me sad. Or, um, well, how how did that happen? She just invited you out. She asked me out. She asked you out. Chose the place, ordered a lot of things. Is it like an expensive place too? It was an expensive place. Didn't want a second date. Was very like afterwards, I definitely felt like Oh, oh yeah, no, that was a hundred percent just to get a free meal. Well, um, so that was I had a lot of sympathy then, as well as um, the first time I had sexual intercourse with a woman, I felt like this immense pressure to perform. 
of like, oh, I got to do well. Uh, what if I like, oh man, like I got to make feel good. And so I was like, oh, I've, I've never had that kind of pressure before as a woman. You just lay down and you're like, here we go. Let's have a good time. Um, Are you saying you felt more of the, the, the male, like masculine character like, like, in that yeah, kind like of relationship? I had to please this other person. Yeah. And I had to perform well and like make sure she felt really good, which, you know, obviously I have felt that in heterosexual relationships, but it's less of a pressure, I think, because I mean, I'm sorry to be crude, but like you're just getting fucked when you're with a dude, you know, with a woman, you're like fucking her. And so, Depends what yeah. kind of sex you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's some kinky Asian yeah. sex out there. Yeah. <laughs> some furries. We're going to watch Cats tonight. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can imagine. So, um, what's, and, and are you mostly dating male then or how does that, how do yeah, you transition that? I'm mostly that? dating men. I've dated some women here and there, but it's just a different ball game with women. And I feel like I'm very behind. I feel like very much like a baby queer. And so I'm also very intimidated by very beautiful women. Cause I'm like, mm. how do I know if she's gay or likes women? Like, how do you know? Step? I don't know. I asked Twitter and everyone was like, look at the, the length of her nails. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, but that doesn't mean anything. I have long nails. Does that, does that go for gay guys too then? I cut my yeah. nails yesterday. No. <laughs> <laughs> really? No. <laughs> Vulnerability with Dr. Emily Anhalt. So in If You Really Knew Me, we have people say, if you really knew me, you would know that. And you share something a little uncomfortable about yourself to another person, something a little vulnerable. And what you get to see is that normally that person is really grateful to hear this thing about you and that sometimes they actually really relate to it and you start to feel less alone in your vulnerability. So that's one exercise we do. Another exercise we do for discomfort, which I just love facilitating, is we make people do an eye gaze, like literally sit and stare into each other's eyes. And it's so uncomfortable, right? Like strangers, strangers that they've just met and they have to sit and stare into each other's eyes for 20 seconds and it's horribly uncomfortable. But they'll do it. And they'll talk and they'll laugh and they'll do all the things that they do to not feel the discomfort. And then we tell them, listen, you clearly were just a little uncomfortable and you escaped that discomfort by laughing and talking and looking away. But now you have more information. You know that you can do it. You're not in it alone. You know it's not going to last forever. So try it again. But this time when you feel uncomfortable, instead of looking away or laughing, take a deep breath. Remind yourself you can do it. Remind yourself it won't last forever. And then we have them do the eye gaze again. And it is just mind-blowing how different the second time goes. People just do the eye gaze. They just stay present with their partner because they remind themselves that they can tolerate discomfort. And it's this beautiful metaphor for the idea that out in the world, you're going to feel uncomfortable all the time. And if you can take a deep breath and tolerate it, all of a sudden you have access to a different kind of intimacy and vulnerability and agency and all of these beautiful things versus just turning away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on, I was going to suggest that we can play the eye gaze here on Skype, but it's probably a bit <laughs> easier to do this on Skype just because it's not in person, right? But right. I'm down to try the if you really knew me game with you if you want to okay, do something do really it. quick. All right. I love it. You want to go you first? You want to go back and forth and do three each? Oof, three. I mean... I don't know if I'm willing to be this. Um, you know what's funny is uh, it's a lot easier to be vulnerable with strangers. I don't know if you have, uh, there should be like an effect, like the hostel effect where you go to a random country, you land at a hostel and you feel like you instantly know someone like way better than someone you may have known for like a year in just three days. I love um, that. It's almost like safer because you know you're going to leave. 
So you don't yeah. have to worry as much about how you're perceived, that kind of thing. There is something about that. I mean, I hope you and I stay in touch, but I'm just, it's, it is a bit easier with strangers, I feel in general, just because, I don't know, there's, there's, there's not, a, it's not as much pressure, I guess. But yeah, do you want to, oh, you're going to be so good at this, though. I feel like you've already got like five memorized. <laughs> uh, can you go first so that I can just think of one? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. If you really knew me, you would know that. When we were young, my sister and I didn't get along at all and really, I think, blamed each other for a lot of the tough things we felt in our childhood. But now she's my best friend in the world and we've really come a long way through, you know, dealing with our own shit in being Wait, able to on, have though. a great relationship. You, you use this in your talk, though, because I know so I know you're really comfortable with this. I feel okay, like there's one that you do something I'm uncomfortable. Talking yeah, about. something that you maybe you haven't shared. Okay, let's Just see. Let's see the where same I can frequency. dig into. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, yeah, that is my go-to example because I think it models vulnerability, but you're right. Let me see if sure. I can be uncomfortable by thinking okay. of something I haven't shared. Okay, let's see. Um, okay, if you really knew me, you would know that I'm compulsively on time and it makes me really uncomfortable when people are late because growing up when people were late, I worried that it was because they'd forgotten about me. Wow. Very deep. Okay. Is it my turn? <laughs> it's your turn. Okay. Um, if you really, is it, if you actually knew me, if you knew me? If you really knew me. If you really knew me, I am, my, one of my fears is that I won't be able to have a very long-term relationship because I've traveled so much. And I think in the last five to 10 years, I've had this very avoidant attachment style, as they call it, that I'm trying to shift into more of the secure attachment. And one of my fears is that I may not find someone that I can, or I may lose someone that's a really good fit for me just because of this, um, I don't know, character default, I guess. Defect, sorry. What a beautiful deep share. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, let's just do one. I, I don't want to do Okay. <laughs> that's This fair. is our first session. Um, but yeah, that's that's something that is probably one. Okay. Um, like, I guess I feel like the other power of this game is that sometimes saying something out loud changes the chemistry of it. Like I often think our more vulnerable and complicated stuff, the way it lives inside our head and inside our body is, is sometimes worse and messier and more complicated than it actually feels once we've said it and seen that other people are like, oh yeah, I feel that way sometimes too, or I can relate to that. And you know, all of a sudden it maybe it doesn't seem as intense, just like when you have a hundred things to do and you think you're never going to do them and then you make a to-do list and you're like, oh, okay, actually I could probably get this stuff done. Courage with Gary John Bishop. Too many people, though, are trying to work out how they could get themselves ready for that rather than just go do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I struggle <laughs> with it, yeah. You know, and, and I get it. I, you know, and you know yeah. what? I did, too, because I looked at life in the same way that everybody else does. Like, if I fix this, then everything going on around me will be fine. What I've come to realize, what I've discovered through reading and learning and coaching people and helping people, if you get out there 
and you take the, I mean, I coached, um, I've coached some like really, you know, very accomplished sports people. And they came to me, one of them came to me looking for confidence, for instance, right? They said, I want confidence. I feel as if I've lost my confidence. You got to get the insanity of that statement. Like you can have it. What do you mean? You don't have confidence. It's an experience that passes through you. It comes and goes. However, if you want to actually get it, if you want to actually have the experience of confidence, you'll have to do the thing you want to do with no confidence. And then the confidence will come up. So with this person, I said, the confidence will arise after you hit the shot. Mm. And they were like, well, but I don't have the confidence to hit the shot. I said, you don't need the confidence to hit the shot. You need the mechanics to hit the shot. Go work on your mechanics. If you're doing 1,000 shots a day, do 2,000 or 3,000, whatever it is, until it's down. And then go hit the shot. And then you'll notice the confidence arises. Yeah. And it does. It like comes up. Confidence is what comes up in a human being. It's an experience. It's a very powerful experience, by the way. But it arises in the moments or the times after you've actually done the thing that you had no confidence with. Yeah. Life changes in the paradigm of action. You need to get into, and, and it's amazing. It's amazing what you're, what's available to you as a human being, like what's possible for you as a human being, that you can accomplish great things without feeling like you can't. Like you don't, you don't have to feel like you're ready to be ready. Mm. You know, you don't have to feel, and it, you know, the Stoics said this, you know, to be courageous, one must act courageously. They don't say to be courageous, get the feelings going first. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm feeling the courage. Let's go. Yeah. No, it's like you step out into the unknown and then you realize, wow, I'm equipped. And that's the grass is what I love about people. People are equipped for the unknown. Sure. They're already equipped for it. How do you know? You're alive. Yeah. You're already existing in it. But you're grabbing for things to try and make it known, you know, or certain or something. Uh, human beings, in my view, are mostly operating at somewhere like 20 or 30% of capacity. Even the most pushed ones, the most stressed ones, you're about 30% mm. of capacity. You're a, you're a bottomless well of being. You have an un, unlimited capacity for passion, love, adventure. Like, it's all there. But you need to first get out of the way, whatever might be in the way of your expressing all of that. Absolutely, yeah. I think one of my favorite things about your message is this idea of expect nothing and accept everything. And it's right. similar in line with like the stoicism philosophy. Right. Right. And I love it. I think Marcus Aurelius, and I'm going to paraphrase, not the, as eloquent as you have, but <laughs> he, uh, in meditations, I think he says something around, say to yourself every morning that you're going to meet people that are going to be envious of you, people that are going to be jealous, people that are uh, evil. And it's like this idea of like, almost like being so, I don't know if it's like realistic, yeah. but it's just having this type of mindset where you're just going to accept everything that comes at you yeah, and you're not going to expect anything yeah. else from that. So um, it's interesting, the whole notion of this, 
Because people will say stuff like, well, it is what it is, right? But you have no sense of what is. When someone says it is what it is, what they're actually saying is, it is what I think it is. Mm. They're not saying it is what it is. Because if you actually relate it to everything as it is, nothing's offensive. Because yeah. it's just what that is. Yeah. Like that person spoke. That's what that is. Yeah. When they say, well, that was offensive and that is what it is. No, that's not what it is. <laughs> now I'm confused. <laughs> so what, what I'm pointing to when people say, well, things just are the way they are, for instance. No, they are the way you see that they are. Which is tainted. Yeah. Which is biased. Yeah. And what you're doing is bringing some kind of sense of positivity or just kind of being a little bit philosophical about it without actually getting. There's nothing around you that has any significance. I mean, if you look at like Zen Buddhism, for instance, the whole point of that is for you to get. There's no significance, not even in you. Mm. Your upsets are insignificant. Yeah. Your challenges are insignificant. What makes them significant is you. But on their own, there's no significance to this paper cup. But somebody could make that a big deal, like they get annoyed by paper cups. or and We've got significance around the paper cup, right? Yeah, yeah, but there yeah. is no, on its own, there's no significance to the cup. So it's interesting that um, I, I think a lot of personal growth work is building strategies to overcome you or have you be a better you. Everything that I do is about you finally understanding you, setting it aside, and exploring. Mm. That you notice you and set you aside. Most of what you'll read out there is about somehow shaping this to be better at what it does. I'm not interested in that. You've already, you're at the zenith of, of this. You're at the zenith of this. There's no... You can only do a better version of this. That's your limit. A reinvention is when you can acknowledge all of that and see all of that and leave all of that where it is and step into the unknown hmm. and then notice the compulsion to be you. And that's why I say accept everything um, because that's a real choice. Like take, People think if I accept something, I'm stuck with it. No, I can accept something and change it. I just don't get all screwed up about changing it. Self-love with Gabby Reese. Uh, I mean, yeah, in terms of best self, for sure. I mean, I, particularly growing up in Korea and just, oh, wow. it's just like having a different beauty standard is another thing. Like, well, they're I, tough there. They're very tough, especially in Korea. I would be yeah. like a farmer with this brown skin, you know. Uh, I'm a peasant. You're close to a peasant. I'm getting there. Yeah, yeah you're I'm a little too there. brown, buddy. <laughs> too tan. Yeah, maybe I should be get out of Mexico. <laughs> Don't be in Mexico. Yeah. But, I mean, I think, I think you know, I have a certain... Not me, I guess, particularly, but I know from my, my mom, my family, they have a certain standard of beauty that they're attracted to that they yeah. think is like the ideal image, whether it's from the media from Asia. Uh, and coming here, especially when I was seven, that completely switched where friends of mine would, would say like, oh, this girl is like really beautiful. And, and I'd be like, 
I was so confused. Yeah. You know, I just was not used to seeing like girls with like blonde hair oh, and everything. Yeah. Even though that was idolized, it just wasn't like something I can connect to. Sure. But I think if you look at it from a global scale, for sure, like being your best self works because there's going to be someone that's going to be attracted to you. There's yeah. someone that's going to think you're beautiful, no matter if you think, you know, you're not just because of what friends around you say, you know? That's right. And, and I think, you know, listen, you go to different cultures, Polynesian culture, you know, the original, the, some of the women before, the bigger, the better, because mm. that meant strong and that meant survival. Oh, you know, we put all this like heady stuff on the things, but I still think we're impulsive animals yep. that are walking around being like, procreate, procreate. And everybody acts like, oh, it's all so conscious. Yes. But I think there is so much of that in there. I mean, I grew up in the in the West Indies, and the women were bigger. Yes. And I think, based on, think about their journey. How did they get to the West Indies? Right. Only the very strong could survive that journey. Sure. So now that's the indication, biologically, and the aesthetic of, that's what you want. Yeah. That is power. You're going to have my babies, because then my babies will have that too. Mm. And I think we all, we forget all of that the genetic drive yep. and the things that, uh, you know, it's, it's a real thing. And I don't care how civilized we are and that we can go up in the rocket. We still have that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this danger, you can press a button and get like a car prior driver come to you. Yeah. You don't really well, need to and swipe, 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 swipe. And all oh, this. So you know about this. Okay. Yeah, of course. I'm yeah. not doing it. I haven't. <laughs> I hope Larry's not listening to this. I, I guess. Oh, Larry would just be like, "What?" He wouldn't even hear that. He would just go. He, if I even said that, like, can you imagine if we broke up and I'm on Tinder? He'd just be like, "Okay." Oh, there's a surf waiting for me. Are, sorry. Are we having vegetables with dinner? Like, he would just be like, "Whatever, honey." Really, a simple message, and it's just a reminder. It's we we all we are who we are, and we are born with certain inclinations more so than others. And I think if we can figure that out and then maximize that, but also continue to work on the weaknesses. And I think the idea is it's about creating value. Mm. And so for me, when I show up, it's like, how can I create value? Whether it's to support somebody, show up in a work way, whatever. And to remind people that it, nothing is easy. For me to have gone into sports wasn't easy. For me to do these businesses, for you to do your businesses, none of it is easy. That is actually part of the story. Yeah. And so make sure you're clear with your reasons, your intentions. And that you really want to show up for that thing, not just because everyone's doing it or you think you can make a bunch of money or get a lot of attention because that's not really that rewarding. And like, give it a go. Like, failure is part of success. And um, as cliche as it is, um, it, it might be in some ways more part of success than the actual success. Sure. And don't be afraid of that. It sucks. And you can survive it. Supplements with Dr. Mike. Wow, okay, these. so you have a lot of supplements. Okay. I have a lot, man, and I spent a lot of money, so I'm like, all right, Dr. Mike, <laughs> can you save me $150 a month because this is getting ridiculous. I was like, Well, what? I'm going to have to give you that prerequisite that we talked about earlier that I'm not going to be giving you individual advice. I'm not going right. to become your doctor here, but I will give you general thoughts on each yes. supplement. Keep in mind, okay, I'm 27 years old, relatively healthy, no illnesses, no COVID. Okay. All right. Okay. So and what, what are your goals? What are you looking to do with supplements i'm honestly trying to maintain energy because i'm running multiple businesses i have podcasts not as crazy as you but it's it's something that i i want to make sure i'm constantly energized and fully alert mentally um, okay. and obviously just prolong health so Fair. 
Vitamin D. I'll remove the branding. Okay. What's <laughs> 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 <Okay>. this <laughs> <Mostly> sponsor? <laughs> um, we got fish oil. Uh, although I heard krill oil is 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 ideal, I might tr- switch that. Uh, probiotics, and I also mixed in vitamin C in there, just because I want to pack light. Uh, vitamin B, I know this is a big one in your video, and biotin. Okay. Because I don't want to get specifically bald. the biotin, just because it was the last <laughs> one. Uh, yeah. Are you, what's your reasoning? Is it the hair, skin, and nails conversation? That- yeah, I just don't want to get bald. Um, okay. So that was like a big one. <laughs> okay. To be honest. So yeah. let's start with biotin because that's like an easy one and a very popular one that people, especially on social media, take. Um, biotin deficiency, meaning that an individual for you to be deficient in biotin is quite rare. Uh, and it's true that if you are one of those rare individuals who has biotin deficiency, you will have more fragile hair, you'll lose hair, but that is a very rare phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And the danger in general of supplements is that they're not regulated by the FDA. Like right now I can sit here, put whatever I want into capsules, slap Dr. Mike's miracle stuff on it and sell it in a store. And it's perfectly legal to me. That's really problematic. Um, And then with biotin, an interesting study came out that showed if you're taking high enough doses of it, which most of these companies are putting in really high doses of biotin, it actually will block the markers that we look and check for for heart damage when someone's having a heart attack. Oh, shit. And if you think about who's taking biotin, uh, a lot of my female patients, ages 50, 60, they want to take a supplement for their hair. They take biotin. They come in, they're having some acid reflux. We do an EKG, it looks non-conclusive and I'll order this blood test. And I always have to make sure that we need to ask if they're taking biotin because they could actually hide the result of that test. And that's just like one example of something that we found that these supplements can be really misguiding our health decisions without any real provable benefit. Like if you're an average healthy person and you take biotin, will you see improvements to your hair? Probably not. All right, that's thirty dollars a month that you're just about to save me <laughs> out the door. No, I don't want to misguide you because what if you're the individual who has biotin deficiency and I didn't do a thorough history on you? So don't All use right. this to make any decision. All right, this is just for me. This is just for me. Don't worry. Okay, I'll be fine. Um, all right, vitamin or let's say I think the next one was vitamin D, right? That you gave. Okay, vitamin, video? yeah, vitamin D is like a popular one, especially in media. I mean. We've seen stories cover everything from having low vitamin D levels to increases in cancer to obesity, uh, heart disease. I mean, they've correlated it to everything. And while those correlations are absolutely true, uh, it really is the chicken or the egg scenario. So is it that you have low vitamin D and as a result, you're developing all these illnesses? Or because you're developing all these illnesses, you're therefore getting a low vitamin D level? We don't have an answer to that question. We also haven't seen the evidence that if you have, let's say, borderline or slightly low vitamin D and you supplement, does it cure your heart disease? Does it lower your risk of diabetes? No, we haven't seen that play out. What we have seen is those who have a very low number, like a vitamin D level of 10, and they supplement, they do see benefit for those rare individuals who have a level 10. And you know, in some areas, if you're completely indoors, maybe it makes sense to take a supplement. It's worth discussing with your doctor. But to me, the issue with vitamin D is the way that it's promoted by the marketing companies and by a lot of physicians 
they almost say it as like a universal piece of advice. Hey, everyone should take this. And that's not true. There's a certain population that may get a benefit. There's a certain population that may get a harm from it, especially if they take it in high dosages. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, meaning that you don't just pee it out like you do with vitamin C, for example. It actually can build up in your fat stores throughout your body and become toxic. So there's true uh, harms that come from taking some of these supplements, and they need to be regulated. You need to be really smart with why you're taking them. Again, if you're just taking a mild, small supplement, really, unless you're taking it from an unsuitable company, you'll be fine. But it's something I instill with my patients. Like if you could put that effort instead of making sure you take your vitamin D every day into a healthier sleep schedule, into a healthier meditation or mindfulness exercise, I would much rather you put it there because the evidence for those Mm. things is that much stronger, even though it takes more effort. Longevity with Dr. Stephen Gundry. I just thought of a question that I wanted to ask you before this interview, because we had a Dr. Mike on on the show and he was talking about this downside of having too much supplementation of vitamin D, E, and K because of the fact that these are fat-soluble supplements, meaning having too much can actually be toxic to your, to your body. Well, so I've been measuring vitamin D levels for 20 years every three months on my patients, and I'm an aggressive pusher of vitamin D. I have never seen vitamin D toxicity ever. Dr. Mark Hyman has never seen vitamin D toxicity ever. Um, I have people who run their vitamin D levels in the 200s, and they're not toxic. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic and Quest now say 150 nanograms per milliliter is normal. It's not toxic. I've run my vitamin D greater than 120 for the last 20 years to prove I'm not dead. Uh, so this is, quite frankly, Dr. Hollick from Boston, the father of vitamin D research, has only seen vitamin D toxicity once in his lifetime. And that was in a physician who by accident was taking a million international units of vitamin D for six months because it was mislabeled. And I'm not recommending anybody take a million international units, but bare minimum for anybody should be 5,000. I have a number of my autoimmune patients on 30, 40,000 a day. Uh, to get their vitamin D levels up. Interesting. And yeah, it's confusing because generally these bottles come with 1,000 or 500 per pill, and they tell you that a recommended dose is one per day. And it's... it's We're just... It's all wrong. 80% of Southern Californians in my practice when they first come in are vitamin D deficient. 80%. In California, too. In California. That's sun. That's because we use sunscreen, which is one of the dumbest things. And that's another subject. All right. Well, round two, Stephen... Uh, Dr. Gundry, would love to have you back on. Uh, what is one small but piece of actionable step that the listener can take after listening to this that they can do to increase their energy, to hopefully increase their longevity? Uh, something small that they can do right after listening to this that they can take action on. It turns out the higher your level of vitamin D, the longer your telomeres are. And if you like the telomere theory of aging, you want long telomeres. So if you hear nothing else that I say, take your vitamin D and start skipping meals and you're going to live a long time. Energy with Wim Hof, the Iceman. When the Vikings, they explored all over the world. They went to, to America in, in wooden ships into the unknown. You know why? 
because they were very well adapted to the cold. They were so much more exposed and so much more activated from within. They were strong. They were ruling over the world far before Christopher, uh, Christopher Columbus and for, uh, before the Western world began to colonize uh, the rest of the world. Those were the Vikings. And that Viking blood is within me, but also within you. We all got that. We are all explorers in this world. And the cold is the great teacher to activate the deep physiology of having no fear, but go explore. Yeah, come to think of it, I don't think I've seen you wear pants. I've always seen your calves. <laughs> every every yeah. video, every... <laughs> do you own pants, Wim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, when, when there is a, a, a funeral of somebody... Uh, maybe I, I wear some pants, you know, for the decency, <laughs> but that's uh, something like that. But I think pants are ridiculous. <laughs> Don't say that to the pants industry. I mean, we got legs, man. We got legs. Show your legs. Show your calves, guys. Show your calves. Um, well, I, what I was saying about the Scandinavian countries, it's crazy that that was kind of the, the it's like a very popular thing there for people to take these cold water baths uh, or jump into these ice, ice waters. And I don't know if it's a causation or correlation, but when you look at the World Happiness Index or report, Finland is the happiest country by, by ratings. Uh, followed by Denmark and, and Iceland and all these different countries. I think Netherlands is one of the top countries right there. So I don't know if that's a, a causation or a correlation, but it says a lot about how cold exposure can certainly you know, help us increase our moods, right? Yes. They use a lot of sauna and mm. they run a lot of out, outside and that uh, you know, stimulation through the cold on the cardiovascular system which is the life force itself being transported through the vascular system. If that is not done, then logically the condition of ours goes down and our hormonal uh, condition, which is uh, creating the dopamine, the serotonin, the, the cannabinoids, the, uh, all the good hormones are not so well flowing. And it is just logic. Embrace the cold. There is the warmth of life. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you brought up saunas as, as one of them. Um, I, I wanted to dig into some of the benefits of heat as well. We talked a lot about ice. We talked a lot about cold. I want to know a little bit more about how we can use heat as well with the cold that acts as a complement to help us either get over the cold or, or help us benefit from, from a health perspective. Yes. Uh, the heat is, a, a, is also working on the thermoregulation of our, uh, in our brain. This is the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus is the thermoregulator, both of the cold and the heat. And uh, together with that, you are able to train the, th uh, the thermoregulative uh, mechanism, the hypothalamus, which is also very much connected to the emotion. So if you learn to go into the cold, into the heat, you learn how to go into the emotion, to deal with the emotion. That's what you learn simultaneously. Because in the end, cold is emotion. Heat is emotion. You feel it. It's strong. So uh, 
the one thing what uh, uh, the cold is doing is contraction of your uh, uh, of your vascular system in the deepest to maintain core body temperature. And what heat is doing is the contrary, is dilatation, opening up completely for the core body temperature not to rise too much. And so both are dealing with the same system. Only one is going in, one is going out. The heat is a great way to train the thermoregulation, the hypothalamus, the emotion. And I, what I can say about the heat, it is also training, uh, it's called hormetic exercise. If you stay a quarter of an hour into a hot sauna, then you are exercising because, once again, it is consciously done. It's you who is going into the sauna. And when it is getting really hot, then you have to exercise by your mind, activate deeper systems to deal with the heat. That means you are activating mechanisms never been activated because there's never such a stress. Now there is such a stress, you go and link neurologically, consciously with deeper systems that makes you able to connect with those systems. And when then a stress comes in the world, then you are able to activate that, uh, those deeper stress mechanisms and deal with the stress. So both the heat and the cold are great for exercising deep systems within us at will to deal later on with any kind of other stress, any shape. Does it matter for people that want to develop a daily routine or whether at their gym and they have access to a sauna and a cold shower after they're working out, is there any difference in terms of what they should do first? Should they get into heat first and then cold, cold or heat? What, what's, is there, or is there a yes. matter? Oh, it, is. it is a big difference. If I say to top athletes, uh, how to deal with the cold, I say before you go into a match, go into the cold, go into mm. the cold. Uh, when you go into the cold, you exercise the adrenal axis. You are into survival because you got to deal with the cold. That means when you are into survival, then that is uh, activating a mechanism that makes you to the utmost of functionality. That is the way the body has, uh, is able to deal with danger. When you go into the cold, you voluntarily, you activate that system. Now, what do you want when you are in a match or in a fight? or in performance, you want to be the best version of yourself. So go into the cold before. Then uh, calm down and be relaxed. But then at that moment, your body is awakened and it's cleansed into the depth to be able to take the full potential in, fully breath instead of a wrong chemistry inside. It is excreted through the cold. It's out of there. The body is cleansed. So the body, the vessel is able to be used to get into the power, uh, opposing power, uh, struggle, fight into uh, the, the uh, how do you say, the equation. Get the equation right without disturbances, chemical disturbances in the body. And that makes you suddenly able to deal with the situation 
because your body is becoming a clean vessel. That is one. Then after, when you did your match, your fight, your performance, people tend to go directly into the court. I say, don't do that. Wait an hour. Because you are, we are talking physically about super compensation. Super compensation is compensation of the loss you got through the exertion of your body in the action, in the match, in the fight. Maybe uh, muscles are torn. Maybe you had to exert more of your muscle uh, tissue, uh, your bones, your this, your that. Your body needs to learn. And it only learns at the moment when you are in rest again. Then it learns how to deal with that to be prepared for the next time. That is called supercompensation. Then when the supercompensation is done after an hour, then go into the uh, uh, ice bath for restoring, for restoring and healing. Because the body will be uh, contracted very much. So all the acid, acid, the acidity gets out of the body. And then the body is able to become alkaline. It's able to enter with energies. The neurotransmitters are able to run through and it's all okay. It's amazing how it works all. Hmm. Reinvention with Yunmi Park. What happened that made you really accelerate your, your need to go and escape to North Korea? Uh, I skip out of North Korea, mm, sorry. It's simple hunger. I was starving, and if I didn't escape, I would die from starvation. So nothing else. It wasn't like I was. I knew the world was like this. I was going to escape one day and become a human rights activist and going to America and none of that. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a way to go to even South Korea. Like, you know, there's no internet. How do we know? Like, you, I heard there were rumors in North Korea saying, like, oh, I heard, like, the dogs in China eat rice. And it, it sounded like such a, like impossible thing. Like, how can dogs eat rice? And you know, humans, we can't even eat rice. And then, luckily, by the time I was in the border town of North Korea, at night, I was seeing this, like, electricity lights brighten up in China's side. Mm. And I just thought, maybe I go where the lights are, I might find something to eat. And I did not know anything about the world it was really when you're on the verge of you know dying you like if you end up, your apartment caught a fire right so you're not gonna think about anything else like try to survive and if that means jumping off the like window you will do it and see what happens and that's what we did it wasn't like anything we had any grand plan about it mm. so the day after i came out of the hospital i went with my mom to that lady and I had my mom's hand, like, we got to escape. So from that time, I was taking my mom's hands, and we escaped China through that lady's connection. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know she was a human trafficker then. I didn't even ask. When you're so desperate, like, th those things don't matter, really. That's the only chance for you to survive. And it didn't really make any change what she was. And it didn't even occur to my mind I had to ask her, like, why are you helping me? Hmm. You know, it was just like, you're so desperate. And she was a human trafficker that was North mm -hmm. Korean, and she had connections to people in China? China, that can yep. Help. Yep. 
So she knew the border guards and she used the guys that she was using to bribe the border guard. Like you cannot escape from Northern like that. Like literally 10 meters wide, there's guards with the machine guns and if they have the shoot to kill order. Like this time South Korea an official got killed by North Korean soldiers in the in the ocean, right? Yeah, they just yeah. shoot to kill him. Exactly like that. They don't even bother to ask you stop or none. They just kill you right there. So luckily the lady who was selling us knew the border guards and bribed them and then she sold us to Chinese people. So she sold you? What do you mean she sold mm-hmm. you? Well, I mean, she sold us for, my mom was $65 in 2007, and she sold me for less than $300 because I was young and I was virgin, and virgin was very expensive in China. So she sold me to human traffickers in China. And that's how she made her money? Yep. But she had the kids, she was starving. It wasn't, but the thing is like, I cannot blame her. And then until I die, I will be thankful for her. If she didn't sold me, I mean, if she didn't sell me, I wouldn't be alive right now. I would have been dead like many, many, many years ago. But you had no idea who you were being sold to. Yeah, I didn't know. You had no idea what was going to happen. And she didn't even know, she didn't even tell me that she was selling me. So when we arrived in China, crossing the frozen river to China in 2007, the first thing that I see was my mom raped in front of me by a Chinese human trafficker. And I never had a sex education, so I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know the word rape. You know, those vocabulary didn't exist in my mind. I just thought that is the most horrible thing I can ever see in my life. And then they were negotiating our price, you know, right in front of me. We are like dogs and puppies. Like people talking about the slavery markets in the past. It's not, it's not like that. They make you stand up in front of there, turning you around and see your conditions. And they, you know, bargain your price and selling to the next human trafficker. And then they were keep selling us through this human trafficking chain. And they were selling my mom and myself separately. So I was... Without my mom, my father, my sister at 13 by myself. And honestly, I, I commend you for being able to reinvent your entire life to come into the U.S. Mm-hmm. and to be able to re-educate yourself. I mean, just mm-hmm. think about all the things that you've been through. What was your mentality <laughs> like? I mean, what was your, was there a flip? Like, was there a switch that flipped in you where you came into the U.S. and you realized it just, you have, you could literally do anything. I mean, was there mm. something that flipped in you to be able to accomplish everything that you've done? You've done a TED talk, you've written books, and you're you have a purpose now. You're you can dedicate mm-hmm. your entire life of helping people those that went through what you did. I think I do know the meaning of not taking tomorrow for granted because my father showed me that. You know, there will be so many people dying to have one more day on this earth. And I know that I could, I know how lucky I am. It was me, I fought harder than anyone else. I just got lucky. I fought for it, but I was still getting lucky. So many people, the fellow were defective when we were escaping, they were drowned in the Mekong River and get eaten by crocodiles. 
and it's not like they didn't fight harder than I am, right? It was it was pure luck, and I think because I know how life now works, it's uh we we don't expect anything. Life is tough, and it's not equal. We all get different like things, but it's up to us fight for the better future. And I think that really helps me going and. And also, though, luckily, I I have so many North Koreans who are so resilient, mm-hmm. and continue to inspire me and not being, you know, resentful. It's so hard, easy to be resentful when you are living in a prosperity, and blaming on other things. But taking the full responsibility, and I don't blame that I was born in North Korea. I don't blame that things happened to me. You know, I'm grateful that happened to me, so I could live like. Full life, literally, full extent of anyone can fear. So yeah. it is like definitely, I think, in mentality, a lot of survivors survive afterwards. They do therapy and they cannot recover. And if you start that self-PD route, there's never end to it. And I, I knew that, and then I told my sister, who I found seven years later, like she was trying to go that route. Like, no, you cannot do that. Like. You know, just and I think that's what really helped my family and myself to thinking from different perspective and always taking the response in me and not blaming others. And did you see a therapist after everything that you've gone through? I mean, you you, you mm-hmm. haven't. I now I am sitting in the marriage counseling. <laughs> I'm sorry, but before that, <laughs> no okay. personal therapy because uh, I didn't even know the word trauma. It's like when you are so in a living hell, like who talks about trauma? Like literally, those concepts don't exist in the living hell, right? It's only in prosperity we can talk about trauma, recovery, all of that stuff. So. I mean, my people who are sitting, kids sitting public execution right now, gonna never talk about trauma, and it's never gonna affect them the way that we expect it to affect them. So I think I really try to keep that perspective where I'm coming from, and not trying to be in this emerging this culture of like. I think I'm not saying it's weak. I think way more compassionate. But if I try to go out of like trying to unpack everything, it's in this narrative, it's gonna be too much, and I didn't need the therapy. Yeah. Because like I just, I mean, what is the point of me surviving all of it? And now I'm thinking about bitter about the whole thing, and sad about what I went through, <laughs> isn't it? Like, what is the point why I survived if I'm not gonna live a full happy life? So it's good to know like how trauma affects me is I read about books on trauma and I try to understand it, but I also not to, you know, get living in the past. I try to move on and moving forwards to the future. Time with Robert Green. Uh, but the other thing is I haven't, I'm not afraid of dying anymore. I already experienced it. The fear is gone and it's sort of like, a, a nice feeling to know that you don't have this this incredible fear that you carry around with you. It's not that I want to die. I'm very much happy that I'm alive, and I'm also very grateful. So sometimes, like yesterday, I was thinking, what if I had been swimming when this happened, which I'm often doing? Mm. I wouldn't be here. I would have drowned. And now 
I wouldn't be having this conversation. I would be dead. People would be talking about me. My book would be out there, but I would be gone, you know? And so when you think like that, it kind of makes you appreciate that you are alive, that I am here talking to Sean Kim, that I am able to, I still have my brain here. I'm, still, I'm going to be able to write another book. So confronting death, as I wrote in that chapter, is a good thing. It makes you not so afraid of anything in life. And it also makes you appreciate the things that you constantly took for granted, the view out of my window, the sound of birds in the air, you know, everything and things that sound a little bit cliched and Pollyannish, but they're true. Yeah, I'm alive. I can appreciate them. So, you know, what I wrote about in that chapter is very real. I'm not saying that it, it's not relevant. It's just it's a thousand times more real when you go through it. Yeah, it's it's an ironic uh, process. Yeah, yeah. It's an ironic process that we have, uh, especially since it's one of those things that most of us, probably everyone, fear the most, especially when we're nearing death. And it's insane how little prepared we are for facing it, whether it's for ourselves or for others. It's just not something that anyone's going to teach you necessarily unless it's something that you train yourself to think about, which is something that you're encouraging other people to do. How has it affected the way you see yourself uh, in career-wise? Do you feel like you're more ambitious and you're willing to take more risks because you've seen what's on the other side? Well, you know, um, I'm not so young anymore. I just turned 61 a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> Happy belated so, uh, birthday. Huh? Happy no, belated thank birthday. You. Thank you very much. Um, so, you know, I, I can't be, I know one thing is my next book is dealing a little bit with this experience mm. of, of facing death. I have a whole philosophy around it that I'm building up in my next book. And I'm very motivated to get this book out and to write it because I know that any day now I could die. I could get the coronavirus tomorrow. I'm a high risk for that because I had the stroke. I could, you know, be hit in my car tomorrow. I could have another stroke. I better get that book out before I die. So it's gotten me more focused on that. And I am working very hard, but I have to be careful because if I work too hard, I, part of the reason I had the stroke was I worked too hard. And I took too much stress on. So I have to be a little bit careful. So it's kind of made me much more focused to get this next book out before I'm dead because I want it to be out there. It's a very important book to me. But some people, it tends to think, well, you know, now that I face this, it doesn't matter anymore. I don't even need to, to get anything more done, you know. It doesn't have that effect on me because I love my work and I love getting a book out there. But I know that I'm not getting younger and I just have to be more careful with my energy and not let this happen again. So it hasn't curtailed my desire or my ambition. It just made me a little more careful and not pushing myself too hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, just given everything with Corona and all the news that we're hearing, I think people around the world are thinking more about death. And I think you know, hopefully the lesson here is that you can you can die doing what you love, but it would be worse if you died without doing what you didn't very love. Much, very much so, very much so. 
Yeah, I mean, I make that point in my prior book, Mastery. I talk about uh, Leonardo da Vinci, sort of the icon of that book. And he had a quote, he was on his deathbed, basically saying, just like at the end of a day when you've worked really hard, you have kind of a blessed sleep. If you've worked hard your whole life and got things done that you wanted to do, you have a blessed death. It's like going to sleep after a hard day's work. Ah, I'm ready to give up my life because I've accomplished things. I've done what I wanted to do. So that's so for if you're younger, it's a wake up call. And I make that point in that chapter. You tend to think I've got this incredible vista of time ahead of me. I've got 40, 50, 60, 70 years. I can waste some time here and there. Yeah, it's okay to waste some time, but you probably don't have as much time as you think. And you could die tomorrow very easily. So knowing that, knowing that you, you could be taken away from you in five or 10 or 20 years, do you want to die not having done any of those things that you dreamed of doing, not experiencing those things that you want to experience, not accomplishing those, those things that you set out that you dreamed of when you were younger? You didn't write that book. You didn't start that business. You didn't make that film. You didn't start that podcast, etc. That's the worst feeling in the world to be facing death in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and to realize I didn't do anything that I wanted to do, and now it's too late. I don't want you to have that feeling. So, you know, confronting your mortality is not a morbid thing. It doesn't mean thinking only about death. It's not like a goth kind of thing. It's more about developing a sense of urgency that each day could be your last day and you better appreciate it. You better work as hard as you can and get things done and appreciate the time that you do have and appreciate the people that you're around. You know, so some of the people that I'm around, like my wife now or other people, you know, I might, I might not have been here for them. So I appreciate them a hundred times more. And the same thing in reverse. Think of the people in your life and imagine that tomorrow they could be they could be taken from you. Wouldn't that alter how you view them right now? Wouldn't you be a little more interested in them and appreciate them on a higher level instead of taking them for granted? So the awareness of death, which is so much repressed in our modern culture, because we don't see anybody dying around us. You know, it all occurs in hospitals where we're hidden from our view as opposed to 100, 200 years ago, where people were dying all around us in the house, etc. It's very important because we, we can go through life without ever thinking about it, without ever confronting it. But in fact, it is a terribly negative thing to repress that confrontation, because it's the most real thing that we have to face. And facing it has all of these incredible benefits for your own personal well-being and for your relationships with other people and for your work as well. Full episodes of Growth Minds can be found here on this YouTube channel, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're feeling extra spunky today, give it a five-star rating for a lifetime of good karma and an even better sex life. All right, maybe not that last part. 